Today we're going to be beginning a brand new sermon series that we're going to be looking at throughout the course of the fall here. We're going to be going through the book of Ruth. The, the name Ruth is a, is a name that in my family has a lot of sentimentality. My grandmother's name was Ruth, and she was one of the wisest people that I ever knew. And my wife and I, when we had uh, our youngest daughter, we decided to give her the middle name, Ruth, and she got, to, she got to meet my grandmother just before my grandmother passed away. So my youngest daughter's emergence into this world and my, my grandmother's exit happened right around the same time, but they did get to hang out for just a couple months, and that was nice. But it's always been, um, you know, when, like when I see that name, that's a name that instantly in my mind triggers this idea of of an admirable person or a person of character. And one of the things I think we're going to see as we go throughout the book of Ruth, you're going to get to know the biblical Ruth, I think, in a deeper way, but you're also going to be able to see God's hand of just gracious redemption as He's graciously redeeming and looking after His people. You're going to see His hand at work in her life and in the lives of those that surround her during that particular era in a way that, that I think will be very encouraging for all of us as we spend some time just meditating on this kind of example of God's grace and how He provides in the midst of what look like bleak seasons or bleak times. And this morning as we begin our study of the book of Ruth, we're going to be focusing on the first five verses of chapter one, and we're going to be talking about the fact that you don't have to remain stuck where you are. And I want you to keep that phrase in your mind just for a little bit. You don't have to remain stuck where you are as we look at this portion of Scripture together. So if you would take your Bibles and open up to Ruth chapter 1. Again, we're going to start with verse 1. We're going to read right to verse 5, and this is going to be the main focus that we look at today as we begin our study of this series. But Ruth chapter 1, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that, the wom- so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together and to begin a new series looking through the book of Ruth. And Lord, we know that there's a variety of things that you can help us learn as we read through these passages and think about the things that you've communicated to us in them. And Lord, I I, I pray that we would learn those things. But Lord, I know that, that even as we look at the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, you help us to understand how your hand is at work, even in very difficult seasons and trying times. And Lord, one of the things that I believe that you can show us from this portion of Scripture is the fact that we don't need to remain stuck where we are, but sometimes our circumstances can 
really influence us to feel pretty stuck, and I'm, I'm certain that those that were in, in the context that's described in this passage were feeling pretty stuck in the context that they were in, at least for a season, until you showed them the way out. But Lord, we're grateful that, that we get to look at this and think about these concepts, and we get to watch your hand at work in the lives of those that came before us. And we pray, Lord, that that would serve as a reminder to us of the fact that your hand is at work in our lives as well. We commit this time to you now. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of Ruth is, and I, I think probably some of you already recognize this just by maybe even your own familiarity with, with the book, but the book of Ruth is one of the best-loved books in the entire Bible. It's a book written from the perspective of women who were heartbroken, women who were downcast, but yet in the midst of that, they remain faithful to the Lord and they remain faithful to each other, and we see that throughout the course of this book, and they watch as the Lord dramatically turns their circumstances around. Now, I recognize that the portion of Scripture we just read is kind of setting up some of the difficulties that they're going through and about to go through, but one of the things we'll see as we work our way through the book is that the Lord dramatically turns their circumstances around. Now, it's believed that the prophet Samuel may have been the one who wrote this book. Some people believe that Samuel is the one who penned it down. Others believe that it may have been compiled from oral traditions and penned sometime during the reign of King David, possibly sometime after 1010 BC. So there's a little bit of debate when the book was penned down and whether or not some people think Samuel was the one that, that wrote it down or whether it might have been somebody else. But regardless, when we take a deeper look at this book, one of, the, one of the things that you begin to see and that this book does so well at illustrating is the fact that God's hand is at work in human history. And specifically, one of the things that I think that the Lord wants us to see is that He is a redemptive God. He's taking messy situations, even things that we messed up intentionally in our rebellion, and He's working His, his hand throughout the course of human history, uh, redeeming and rescuing lost mankind, even during seasons when, the, when things seem like they're at their absolute darkest. And when you look at this book, you're going to see a variety of things. You're going to see the fact that, that God's compassion for His children gets illustrated all throughout the pages of this book. This book also illustrates the fact that God desired to bless Israel with a godly king, and we're going to see that in particular when we get to the latter section and we watch how God traces the, the lineage of, of the king through the characters that are referenced in this book. But most importantly, this book illustrates the detailed, long-term objective of God the Father to send His Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to rescue and redeem all mankind. And I'm going to show you how this, scripture, how this book in particular points us to Jesus Christ. And as we study the content of this book together, I want you to notice a variety of things, but I want you to notice at least first God's hand in immediate circumstances. I think sometimes that becomes the more obvious thing to look at, and I think it's probably where we could start as we look at this portion of Scripture together. And so you have the immediate circumstances being described that are difficult, and so you can see God's hand at work in those circumstances. But I also want us to keep asking the question as we go through the chapters, as we go through the pages, how is this passage trying to point my eyes and my heart toward Jesus? Because if you really want to understand the book of Ruth, and if you really want to understand why the Holy Spirit inspired this portion of Scripture to be included in the canon of Scripture, that's the bigger question to ask. That's the bigger question to try to understand. That's the bigger objective that this brief book is trying to help us to understand. Now, 
Look again at the opening verses here of this passage or of this book. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the book of Ruth here, it starts off with that description. It tells us about um, a, a troubling account of people named Elimelech and Naomi and their sons and the trials and tragedies that their family experienced during the era in which they lived. Now, for starters, we're told that they lived in the era of the judges. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the era of the judges, but that took place. So think of the time of Moses and Joshua, and then the time right after Joshua leading up to when Israel had a king. That in-between time from Joshua to when Israel had a king, that's the time of the judges. And this was, you know, this was during that period of history before Israel's ruled by kings. So you have these spirit-empowered leaders, these judges, that the Lord would raise up to lead the people of Israel for, a, 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 it was a period of about 480 years, and that's how Israel was led. So you have these powerful judges that would, that would rule. And typically when we hear the word judge, we tend to think of somebody in a robe in a courthouse making legal decisions. That's not how this term is being exclusively used. This is a, a, a term that's describing these people that were these powerful leaders. If you've heard the story of Samson, and you think about some of the things that he did, well, he was one of the judges. He was one of these powerful people that the Holy Spirit empowered during that particular era of time to lead the people of Israel and to defend them and to protect them. And you have a period of time for 480 years where that's how Israel is led. Now, eventually they got jealous of the other nations, and they said, we want a king like the other nations have. But prior to having a king, they were ruled by these judges. But it was a weird time. And I know that sometimes I think to myself, all right, we live in a weird time. Do you ever say that to yourself? I, like, sometimes I just think, oh, man, this is so weird. Sometimes I'll say, all right, forgive me for saying this. You don't have to forgive me. You can actually hold this against me if you want. But I think to myself, man, I'm so glad that I got to spend a good chunk of my life living in the 80s and 90s. That was way more fun. And I'm like, now it's just weird, right? And some of you are like, 80s and 90s, please, you should have experienced the 60s. That was great. And the 50s and all that, whatever. I had what I had, right? And, uh, and I, but I look sometimes at our time, and I'll, maybe 10 years from now, I'll think, like, I, who knows what I'll think 10 years from now, right? But sometimes I look, I think, man, we live in a weird time, weird time. Those of you that are younger than me, do you feel that way too, or is it just, just me? I'm 46, so at age 46, is that one that really clicks in your mind? Anyone in your 30s, do you feel like we live in a weird time? Well, imagine living during the time of Elimelech and Naomi, during the time of Judges. To give you a, a picture of what that period of time looks like, I'm just going to read to you what the book of Judges itself says about that time. And in the book of Judges, when you look at chapter 2, verses 16 to 19, it says this, it gives us this picture of what it was like. So imagine living during a time like this, or maybe after I read this, you're going to think, uh, don't we live in a time exactly like that? But it says this, it says, then the Lord raised up judges, this is Judges chapter 2, starting with verse 16, it says, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. 
But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. That's how Scripture describes them. You know, adopting these evil, wicked, detestable practices and getting worse and worse and worse, and not dropping these things, but, a, but getting more stubborn in them. Now, that doesn't sound like a very pleasant time to live, but that's the time that, that these people that we're looking at in this story, that's the time that they lived in. And it was a time characterized by taking the Lord's blessings for granted. Well, I have to admit, there are plenty of times in my own life that I have taken the Lord's blessings for granted. And I think culturally, we're pretty good at taking the Lord's blessings for granted. And I think probably all of us at one point or another could probably say, if we're honest, well, you know, we've probably all taken the Lord's blessings for granted, possibly at times without even realizing it. We're also told it's a time that, that when, when people would gravitate toward the detestable practices of the false gods of their neighbors. And they would adopt these things. They would bow down to these false gods, the Scripture tells us. And even though the Lord would raise up judges who would lead the people and who would fight on their behalf and who would rescue them from the hands of their oppressors, the people kept embracing worldly corruption. And they kept hardening their hearts toward the Lord. They got increasingly more stubborn. And so that's the culture that Elimelech, and that's the culture that Naomi and their family lived in. And the Scripture also tells us that in addition to that, so imagine the culture being that detestable, in addition to that, during their day, a famine was raging all, all throughout the land, and you have Elimelech basically genuinely fearing that his family would starve. So the Scripture tells us that they took a temporary sojourn from Bethlehem in Judah to the land of Moab in the hopes that they would be able to find food there and probably produce food there. They were basically just trying to live so they didn't starve in the midst of this famine. Now, just to give you a picture of where Moab was, Moab was located across the Dead Sea from Judah, but it, had been, it was a country that had historically been an enemy to the people of Israel. It was a land that had set itself against the people of God. It's certainly not the kind of place that you would want to move to unless you absolutely had to, but the irony is even in, in Judah and Israel, the people were setting their hearts against God. So moving to a foreign nation at that point, it doesn't even sound like it would have been all that different because even in their own land, they were rebelling against God. But when you read the story of Elimelech's family in the early verses of this book, one of the things that kind of strikes me as we read that, it looks like a group of people that just can't catch a break. Did you kind of feel that way? You know, they, they have to move, then they experience famine, then Elimelech dies, and then Naomi's sons die. And, uh, you know, the Scripture tells us that sometime after moving to Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi without a husband. But, you know, at least at first she still has her two sons, and then Malon and Chilion are caring for her, but then they die. And, and it's interesting, though, but even before they died, when their sojourn had turned into a long-time living arrangement, we're told that those sons got married. So I, I don't get the impression that they initially thought that they were going to be there in Moab for a long period of time. And uh, I'm guessing that Naomi wasn't, you know, really thinking that at some point her sons were going to grow up to marry Moabite women because these were people that, again, typically were setting themselves against the people of Israel and Judah. And, and, uh, but this sojourn turns into a long-time living arrangement. Her sons get married to Moabite women. 
And, um, and somehow the scripture tells us they made it all work for about 10 years, but then tragedy strikes again and both of Naomi's sons died. And I don't know exactly how they died. It doesn't tell us all those details in this passage. But this leaves Naomi and her Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Those are their names, Orpah and Ruth. By the way, this is just bonus content. You don't have to remember this. It's not even biblical. But Orpah, you know, you know Oprah Winfrey? All right, you know the name Oprah Winfrey? So originally her name was, I, and I kid you not, her name was supposed to be Orpah after this. Her name was supposed to be Orpah. And someone wrote it down wrong on some of her documentation, so they just kept calling her Oprah. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if that's going to help you win a game of trivia or anything like that, but it might help you remember this passage, kind of keep it in the back of your mind. Um, but yeah, so you have, you have Orpah and you have Ruth. These are the daughters-in-law that, that Naomi's sons had married, and now Naomi and Orpah and Ruth are left to figure out what to do next and how to navigate this next season of life. And keep in mind, this was a very hard time for a woman to try and live without the care and provision and protection of a man. It was not very easy during that period of time. It was a violent time. It was a time when people, it's like they were living without any sense of conscience. It was a time when women were oftentimes just treated like property. And so just picture, just, I mean, these are real people. So picture Naomi and picture Orpah and picture Ruth trying to figure out what to do. Because these men, Elimelech and, and Naomi's two boys, they're dead now. Everybody's dead. They're trying to figure out, you know, what on earth are we going to do? I think it's fair to say that these women felt desperate. I think it's also fair to say that these women probably felt fearful. But the cool thing is, as this story unfolds, we're going to be shown the merciful ways in which the Lord chose to provide for them and even give them a better life than what they had before, which is kind of amazing to really think about. Now, that's a little background setting us up for what this passage is talking about and some of the things that are going to come next. But when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, sometimes I think it's useful to say, all right, why is this here? Like, what am I supposed to learn from this? How is this pointing me to Christ? And what does He want me to act upon as I read a portion of Scripture like this? And something that typically helps me when I go through a portion of Scripture like this is to kind of put myself in a context or put myself in the spot of the people that are being referenced here and just try to apply their life circumstances to some of the things that I'm wrestling with and how this actually intersects with my faith in Jesus Christ and what this looks like. And so some of the questions that come up to me when we're looking at a passage like this are things like this. Are you feeling stuck in a spot that you thought you were only visiting? So I want you to think about that question for just a second. Are you feeling stuck in a spot that you thought you were only visiting? Now, when Elimelech and Naomi and their family left Bethlehem to go to Moab, I don't get the impression that they expected to be there for a while. And part of the reason why I don't get that impression is because of the, the words that are actually used in this passage. Because their, their visit is first described, and, and maybe you caught this, their, their visit is first described as being a sojourn. So let's talk about being a sojourn. So when you think about a sojourn, we're going to revisit that word again in just a few minutes, but when you think of a sojourn, you don't think of something that's necessarily a a long period of time, you tend to think of it as something that's maybe brief. But then as you continue to, to read the description in those opening verses, it goes from describing their time as a sojourn to describing it as the fact that they remained there. So it goes sojourn, and then it says they remain there. And then it goes from there to say that Moab is now where they lived. Sojourn, remain there, lived. 
That's the progression that we see them going through. And I, I kind of wonder if you've ever noticed anything that resembles that progression taking place in your own life. Sojourn, remain there, lived. You know, are there times when you feel like maybe you've become stuck in a spot that you thought you were only visiting? It's interesting because that's the kind of gradual process that's described elsewhere in Scripture, but applying to something else. It's actually that kind of process, process that's described in Psalm chapter 1 regarding the way that we tend to grow familiar with the presence of sin in our lives. Let me read to you. This is how the book of Psalms open, opens up. So we just read, we just read the, the opening of Ruth, but look at how Psalms opens up. In Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So think about those verses for just a moment. I think it's fair to say that, that many followers of Christ would say that they aim to follow the teaching of the, of the Lord's Word and that their long-term goal is to learn to genuinely delight in the, in the Lord and in His law. But I think a, a lot of us would also admit that the presence of habitual sin can at times rob us of that delight. Maybe you've gone through seasons in your life where you feel like you've really wrestled with that. How does sin become habitual? You know, if you're wrestling with something right now that you would describe as a habitual sin in your life, and all of us, I don't care who we are, all of us have wrestled with that at one point or another, how does that happen? You know, how does it go from being a curiosity that we're dabbling with to becoming a foothold in our lives. Well, the psalmist describes it in Psalm chapter 1. And the pattern involves this. It involves walking toward it, standing near it, and then sitting in it. Isn't that what we do with sin? We walk toward it, we stand near it, and then we just sit right in it. And that's how dabbling becomes a habit. And that's how curiosities become addictions. But Jesus can set us free from all of it. And even as I say that, I'm, I'm making that statement just as a declarative statement that Jesus can set us free from all of that. And I wonder when I make a statement like that, when I make a declarative statement just claiming that Christ can set us free from habitual sin, do you believe it? I want to show you a picture. I actually had the chance to talk to this guy recently. Does anyone know who that guy is? It's okay if you don't. His name is Dylan Jarvis. He's a, uh, he's a recording artist. He just released a few songs. They're starting to, to do well for him. Uh, he lives down in Nashville, but he grew up in Memphis. And uh, I interviewed him the other day, and we were talking. And uh, one of the things that's kind of interesting in his life story is that he went through a season where he was dealing with some pretty severe addiction. He got addicted to, to, I think, several drugs. I think heroin was one of the big ones that he got hooked on for quite a while. And I don't know all the details of how this all came to be, but the things that he was dealing with ultimately resulted in him being handed a 30-year prison sentence. And so he went to prison. Now, look at him. He's not that old. You know, I don't even think he's 30 yet. But he was given a 30-year prison sentence, and he started serving that sentence. And in the midst of that experience, now, you can't see his, you can't see his hands, 
but his hands have tattoos all over his hands. And on one hand, it says song, and on the other hand, it says bird. So when he, if he puts his fists like this, it says songbird. And uh, he was explaining, yeah, when he was in prison, one of the things that he would do to just try and help pass the time was just, just write songs, and he would sing. And uh, the other guys in the prison started calling him the songbird, and so he got it tattooed on his knuckles, songbird. And he said, but while he was in there, the Lord really started to speak to him. And the Lord really made himself real to him. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to test the Lord in this. He's like, I want to be free of this addiction. I want to be free of these things that I've got my, myself all wrapped up in. I want to be free of this habitual sin. But my strength has not been sufficient to get me over the finish line. And every time I've tried to get free of this, I haven't succeeded. And so he started calling on the name of Jesus in the midst of that context. And he said, I kid you not, he said, I, I, I know that people probably want a more complicated answer from me, but I'm just telling you, that's what I did. I called out and asked Jesus just to help me. I was a mess. I, I was messing up my life. Here I am serving a 30-year prison sentence. And I just asked him, like, just please help me. Just please help me break this addiction. And he said, you know what? The Lord answered that prayer. And he said, he set me free. And he said, he's been five years sober now. And soon after that, he was actually put up for parole, and they let him out. And then he got signed to a recording deal. And some of these songs that he wrote in prison, he started to now sing, and they're starting to do really well. And it's just song after song testifying to the fact that Christ is the one that set him free. Christ is the one that set him free from these addictions. Christ is the one that set him free from the habitual sin that he was wrestling with. And so he's just using the platform that the Lord's blessed him with to testify to that. And here's the thing. I believe that the power of Jesus is, is sufficient to set us free from our habitual sins and from our addictions and from our struggles. And if you're dealing with something right now, I don't think you need to overcomplicate it. I actually think that if you call upon the name of Christ and you truly, truly submit yourself over to him and invite him into your life and invite him to set you free, I believe he will set you free. You submit yourself over to him and ask in faith, will he not answer that prayer? Of course he'll answer that prayer. And I think he'll also provide you with resources and people and help and outside guidance that can supplement that. But the source of your power in the midst of breaking any addiction or habitual sin is not going to come from changed habits, habits and it's not going to come from yourself. It's going to come from Christ who will lead to those changed habits. And he will put people around you that encourage you and support you. But he'll be the one answering that prayer. And I, I thought it was so cool to talk to Dylan and just hear his testimony and hear that, you know, here he was feeling stuck in a spot that he thought he was only visiting. He walked toward that addiction, then he, then he stood in it, and then he sat in it, and it became such a part of his life, and the Lord set him free. I think that's a wonderful thing to think. It's something that I think Scripture illustrates to us time and time again, that Christ can indeed set us free. But here's another question I want us to wrestle with. What would happen if you started to treat your entire earthly life like it was a sojourn? Your entire earthly life, just treating it like it's a sojourn. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the things of this world because that's the only world our natural eyes have seen. This is the world that my natural eyes have seen. So it's very easy for me to get caught up in the things of this world. And maybe you think that that same way as well. We get so caught up in wanting the things of this world. We get so caught up in believing that this world can satisfy the deepest desires of our souls that we stop looking toward the greater kingdom that the Lord assures us that we're part of 
and we will live in forever. And we get so caught up in looking at this world, and we think that this world has the solutions to our problems or the solutions to our deepest longings. And what does Scripture tell us time and time again? That this world can't solve those things because those things are deeper. They are eternal, and they're ultimately only solved by the Lord. So I wonder what would happen if instead of of treating this world like it's our final destination, we started treating our entire earthly life like a sojourn like a temporary living arrangement in the midst of a foreign land. I wonder, what would we learn to value? And how would we treat people? And how would the affections of our hearts be impacted if we just started treating our entire earthly life like it's a sojourn, a temporary visit in a foreign land? I think if we treated our time on this earth like a sojourn, I think we'd be more likely to stop looking to the things of this world to satisfy the deepest cravings of our souls. When you talk to the oldest, and, I, and I, I hope you have some of these people in your life. I have a few of these people in my life, and uh, as time marches on, I hope by God's grace one day to become one of them. But the oldest and wisest Christians can tell you something about what it looks like to walk with Christ in the midst of this world. And they can tell you, if you talk to them, that nothing in this world was capable of satisfying their hearts like Jesus. They tried everything else, and they saw that nothing satisfied their hearts like Jesus. So just think about the list of things that you and I crave right now because we're convinced we'll be satisfied by them. We seek inner peace from all sorts of things. We seek inner peace from marriage. So how many of us have thought that marriage was going to be the solution to the longing of our souls? We just got married. We just got married. Then all of a sudden, your soul would find satisfaction. Is that how it works? Or how about this? Children. You know, once you get married, then you think, all right, if I have children, if I have children, then my soul will be satisfied. Or how about riches, or possessions, or cars, or vacations, or dream houses, or sports, or hobbies, or sexual pleasures, or food, or alcohol, or exercise, or video games, or our appearance, or our status, or a good retirement? Have you ever looked to those things and any of those things, or maybe multiple things on that list and thought, if I could just get that thing, then my life would be filled? then my soul would be satisfied. Then I would be complete. And the truth is, every one of those things that I just listed, some of the things on that list, they're not necessarily bad things. It's just that every one of those things on that list can change, or it can be taken away, or it could even hurt you, depending on which part of the list you're emphasizing. But here's the thing, when you have Jesus, you have what you truly need. It's just that sometimes we forget that truth. We have Jesus, we have what we truly need, and he won't, leave, he won't leave us, and He won't leave us regretting trusting our life to Him. Love what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10. He makes a statement that I think is worth thinking about quite often. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, what do we often think, where, or where do we often think abundant life can be found? Don't we th- often think that abundant life can be found in the list of things that, that I just shared with us? And what does Jesus say? Listen, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, saying Satan and those who serve Satan come to steal and kill and destroy, just to tear down. But he says, here's what I've come to do. I've come to give you life, abundant life, good life. 
A life that can be content regardless of your circumstances. A life that can be content knowing that if you have Jesus, you have what you truly need. A life that can see beyond its current circumstances. That's the kind of life that Christ desires to give to us. You know, I have to tell you, we're at, as I look around this room, there are people at all different seasons of life. I see children in this room. So some of the youngest people in this room, you're you know, in elementary school, some of you are in middle school, some are in high school. And then we work our way up the list, right? Some of you are in college, some of you are just post-college. Some of us are middle-aged, some of us are seniors, some of us are, are uh, senior seniors, right? What, what comes after saying senior? I don't know. The, the wise sage, that's what it should be, sage. Some of us are sages. You know, and so you, 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 you look at this and it's like, okay, well, I mean, we could try what this world offers, and all of us have done it. You could try it. You could try what, what, what this world is telling you is going to make your heart content. But here's the thing. Is there anything apart from Christ that has ever produced lasting contentment in your heart? No. Why? Because we're trying to find lasting contentment through temporary things. So it's not actually logical, and yet we do it. And I'm not saying, I, this isn't like the pastor pointing his, his fingers at everybody and saying, Man, such sinful people I have to preach to every Sunday. I mean, can you believe? Feel compassion for me. Like, can you imagine the people I have to deal with? This is me pointing the finger at me and saying, how many times have I gone through life telling myself that something that's temporary is going to give me lasting contentment? Why would I ever let myself think that? And yet I've done it a million times and you have too. And what does Jesus say? If you want abundant life, I'll tell you where to get it. He says it's through him. That's where you get abundant life. That's where the deepest form of contentment that you and I could ever experience would be. And I think it's useful to look at our life on this earth and say, you know, this will be interesting. <laughs> It'll be interesting. Maybe I'll live during a weird time, or definitely I'll live during a weird time. But here's the thing. This is just a sojourn. I'm a foreigner in a foreign land for a brief period of time. That's all this is. And I'm not going to treat this like this is some sort of permanent destination, because it's not. And Christ says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is found in Him. It's not found in things that can change. It's not found in things that can be taken away. It's not found in anything that can be stolen. One more thing I want to point out to us. And I think it's useful to think about, especially as we look at Naomi and Elimelech and Think of Ruth and Orpah and some of the things that they were dealing with. And it's something I think a lot about, and I've mentioned it a few times recently, but I, I want to mention it in this context as well and just ask the question, can you see beyond your trials and tragedies even while you're still experiencing them? You know, kind of building off the question I just asked, if we're living like sojourners in a foreign land, taking a temporary trip, can you see beyond it? Can you see beyond your trials? Can you see beyond your tragedies, even while you're still experiencing them? So when you read the opening verses of the book of Ruth, and we just read them a couple times together, but when you really think about the fact that those verses are describing actual hardships and actual heartbreaks of real people, this isn't just like a story, this isn't just an illustration, this is real people who dealt with real things, I think it's hard to read that and not feel their pain like it's happening to you. Don't you feel that way? And I noticed even as I was reading it, I, I heard some of you audibly react a little bit as we were kind of thinking through and feeling some of the things that these people were experiencing. 
I think their story is one when you read it, you could easily find yourself asking, why would the Lord allow so much pain to impact one family over such a short period of time? Why would he do that? Why would he allow so much pain in such a short period of time for just one family? You know, over the course of this weekend, I spent time in two very different events, drastically different. So one was joyful and the other provoked feelings of sorrow. And I couldn't help but feel impacted by the drastic difference that I noticed between both events. So on Friday evening, my wife and I, we attended the wedding for a family member of hers, actually one of her first cousins. He got married, and so we went to the, to the wedding. And, you know, it was like, like all weddings, right? I mean, there was singing, there was dancing, there was hours of celebration. It was like a family reunion, people spending time together. It was a lot of fun, very joyful occasion. And then just a few hours later, yesterday morning, Saturday morning, we attended the funeral of a good friend who was my roommate my freshman year of college. He died unexpectedly earlier this month. They still don't know exactly what he died from. And, um, and so there we were. And at the funeral yesterday, uh, I hear his wife and I hear his daughter and I hear his friends testify to the impact that he had on their lives. I thought it was a good reminder. It was kind of an interesting thing. It's almost a shame we don't get to hear those things prior to going, right? Wouldn't it be nice if maybe someone told you those things, you know, ahead of time? But there were some nice things that were said. And, you know, as his friends, we cried. But we also reminded each other that the Lord has bigger plans than what we can often wrap our minds around in the midst of our moments of grief. But yet, even though our, mo- our, our hearts were heavy in that moment, one of the things that I appreciated about that time was the fact that it was also just covered with this confidence in the Lord and in His redemptive plan for humanity that He's going to work all things together for good for those who trust Jesus Christ by faith. And here's the thing that I've started to learn over the course of time, and this is something the Lord's really... He's taken a lot of time to drill this into my heart, and maybe he's doing that same kind of work in your heart as well. But I have to tell you, the longer that I walk with Jesus, the more he's been teaching me that I can trust him to restore all things and and bring all things together for our good. And he's teaching me that I don't have to wait for everything to resolve before I can have that kind of confidence in his plan. I think for a long time, I was really good at looking back at things that the Lord did and giving him praise for things after, after I saw how it all worked out. But one of the things that he's been teaching me is that I don't have to wait for it to resolve before I could thank him for what he's already doing. I could give him praise ahead of time, knowing that it's all going to work out, and maybe I'll see it in my lifetime, and maybe I won't see it in my lifetime, but I do believe it will work out. He's been teaching me that I could trust him, that even when things look messy and unsettled, he's got a plan. And it's ultimately going to be for His glory, and it's going to be for my good and for your good and for the good of all who love Him. He's helping me to see beyond my trials, and He's helping me to see beyond my tragedies, even while I'm still experiencing them. That's been a new and fresh reminder of Christ's presence in my life during this particular season. It's just something He's been making me more and more conscious of, and so I just want to express it to us as a church family, because maybe that's something that the Lord will encourage your heart with as well. We don't have to wait till it's all settled. You could trust Him while everything is still messy and know that He's bringing it to a desired end. And I think that that was a lesson that He was teaching Naomi and Ruth in particular as well. I think it's a lesson we're going to have the privilege to learn with them 
as we study the pages of this book together and read the unfolding story that these pages contain. But I think it's also a lesson that the Lord will impress upon our hearts as we yield our plans, as we yield our dreams, and as we yield our ambitions and expectations at His feet. Here's something that I've been learning, and I'm sure some of you learned this well ahead of me. Earthly life rarely works out the way we thought it would. Isn't that the understatement of the day, right? Earthly life rarely works out the way we thought it would. But it always works out the way it should to produce the greatest good. So I hope our study of the book, the book of Ruth, is going to be something that will help us to see that truth in a new and deeper way. I do believe that that's one of the many lessons that the Lord wants to communicate to us in this study together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to take some time together today and to open up this book and to start thinking about the journey that you took, in particular, Naomi and Ruth on. The things that you were teaching them, the things that you were showing them, the things that they endured together. And Lord, we know that as, we'll, as we're about to read this book together and study it together, these are two women that we're going to get to know really well. These are two women that we're going to see tested, and we're going to see them take steps of faith, and we're going to see how you were providentially guiding their lives, but also doing something much bigger than just something that would impact just their two lives. Lord, as we look at this book, you're going to show us your redemptive plan for humanity. You're going to illustrate it in individual lives, but ultimately this book is yet another portion of Scripture that points us directly to your Son, Jesus Christ, the, the ultimate Redeemer, the ultimate Rescuer, the one who ultimately draws us unto Himself and gives us new life, abundant life, eternal life. So, Lord, thank you that you can use a story like what we're reading about Naomi, about Ruth, about the people that you brought into their lives and, and use their example and use their experiences and use their trials to help us learn more about the type of things that you're doing in and through us. Lord, I recognize that each and every one of us gathered here, we have, we have unique stories and yet there's overlap. There are tragedies that some of us have experienced recently. There are some of us that have experienced tragedies in our past. There are heartbreaks that some of us have experienced recently and some of us in our past. And some of us both, in both seasons, in the past, in the present, and maybe we feel maybe a little bit like a Limelech's family where we're maybe starting to feel like we can't catch a break. But Lord, it's wonderful to realize that if we just take a step back and look at these things from the greater perspective of history, that you're accomplishing something that's far beyond our momentary circumstances. You've promised us through your son, Jesus Christ, we will have abundant life. And it's easy to forget that sometimes in the midst of our trials and in the midst of messy seasons and messy moments. But Lord, we pray that that would be the type of thing that stays fresh in our minds and fresh in our hearts, regardless of what we're going through. Lord, help us to see that in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the confusion, and not only afterward. We want to see it then too, but we also want to see it in the midst of the mess. 
And Lord, we pray that you'd just help us to trust you in the midst of our days, recognizing that our time here on this earth is short. This is not our ultimate destination. You have better things in store for us. And so while we sojourn like foreigners in the midst of a temporary place, in the midst of a temporary land, we pray that you'd just help us to trust you in the midst of it. We pray that we wouldn't look at our circumstances and our pain and our trials like they are permanent realities because they're not. They're momentary blips, and even from the perspective of eternity, I believe there's going to be a day where essentially we don't even think about these things anymore. They just seem so minuscule compared to the eternity of blessing that we'll experience in your presence. So Lord, what weighs us down right now, remind us that it won't weigh us down forever, and that ultimately you will resolve all things for the good of your people and for your own glory. And again, Lord, thank you for reminding us of these things as we study this book together and as we watch your gracious and redemptive hand at work throughout the course of human history. We're grateful for it all, whether we feel like we live in a weird time or a stable time. Regardless, we know that your hand is at work, and we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen.